the Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Don't operate these conditions, boy. You know we're coming out. It's like it's like that. We're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got like my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 11 I'm going to go a bit off topic with my recommendation this time. A History of the World in 100 Objects is a BBC production on BBC Sounds presented by Neil McGregor. The reason? The forensic detail in which seemingly mundane historical objects can be studied to reveal their story. That's also the point of this podcast, to really listen to what's being said and try to understand what's unfolding. As ever, if you want the full binge of events so far, please go back to episode 1. Otherwise... Here is a brief summary of episode 10. It's the morning of Friday, January the 3rd, 1969. Paul and Ringo are the only two Beatles in attendance. It's clear that they've been asked by director Michael Lindsay Hogg to sit at the piano and be filmed playing something. As the tape is switched on, we get a very brief run through of the long and winding road, without lyrics, but with some tuneless plonking along by Ringo. Paul pauses and mutters something along the lines of You just clap to Ringo, which the latter acknowledges with a good-natured laugh. Paul then plays through a selection of works in progress, Oh Darling to start and then followed by Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Despite his comments about this song in later years, Ringo is enjoying this performance at this early stage. Michael pauses to ask Paul and Ringo if they felt like they were being filmed. Paul in between bites of a large green apple that he's brought along for a subtle bit of product placement says no. However, that's not entirely true as he will relate later. Michael won't use any of these upbeat happy beetle shots. Instead, he'll focus on the sombre piece that Paul plays next. It's become a consensus that Paul is playing a classical piece here called Barber's Adagio for Strings. Although I went into depth about this piece, I'm still not 100% convinced about whether this is Barber's Adagio, so I'm throwing it open to you, dear listeners. I'm going to speed up a performance of the Adagio on piano and play it alongside Paul's performance. Let me know in the Winter of Discontent pod, Instagram, Facebook page, Gmail account or on the Twitter account whether you think Paul's piece is the Adagio or something else. First of all, We'll play a speeded up version of Adagio for Strings. 
and now we'll play Paul's Adagio. 29 take 1, sync, second day shooting, 5 to 11. I'm still not 100% convinced. I've hinted that it may have been a misremembered teenage transcription like Paul's version of J.S. Bach's Bourree, but I'm happy to be corrected. With more forced good-natured humour, Paul and Ringo give a mock tap-dancing performance of the T for Two Cha-Cha, which Lindsay Hogg describes as madcap. Paul apologises for getting the chords wrong, which belies his earlier comments about not feeling like he was being filmed. An off-key version of Chopsticks and then some improvising which reminds Ringo of the theme to Torchy the Battery Boy follows. And then Paul starts playing some Jerry Lee Lewis style piano. Ringo can play along with this and they'll repeat this idea for the cameras later in the sessions. Paul starts singing Lewis's whole lot of shaking. After some more doodling, Paul unveils another unfinished idea. Let it be. A song that will grow in significance as sessions develop. George finally arrives, apologising for being late, and at this point, Michael calls for the cameras to be cut. It's perhaps the most egregious piece of editing in the Let It Be film, at least so far. This morning's largely comical performances are edited into a selection of solemn looks overlaid with a tidied up performance of the most maudlin piece of piano captured today. That said, we will find other sections of the recordings edited to change their meaning later on. Let's join the three Beatles now as they have a morning cuppa and talk about the Beatles book that George has discovered on set. Good this month. A former coffee bar owner in the 1950s, Sean O'Mahony was also a songwriter with contacts in music publishing. It was through these that he found work as advertising manager for the magazine Pop Weekly. Pop Weekly was published by Robert Stigwood, and it was Stigwood's association with Brian Epstein that led O'Mahony into the Beatles' orbit. He had begun publishing his own small format magazine called Beat Instrumental, and in June 1963 he featured the Beatles on its front cover. Sensing an opportunity, O'Mahony approached Brian with the idea of a dedicated Beatles fanzine. The first edition was in August 1963, with an initial print run of 80,000. Very quickly its circulation increased to 330,000 copies every month. Such was the demand for more information on the Fab Four. Each book is small and slim, around 30 pages but they feature many unique photographs taken by Leslie Bryce, who had unrivaled access to the band. Pick up any copy today and you'll find it packed with photos that you can't get anywhere else. Members of the Beatles' inner circle were often contributors. Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans wrote columns, as well as fan club secretary Frida Kelly, who advertised the fan club merchandise. The editor was one Johnny Dean, but that was merely a nom de plume for Sean O'Mahony himself. One other distinctive member of the team was Bob Gibson, who worked as a cartoonist for the magazine. 
and was commissioned to produce the dazzling booklet artwork for the Magical Mystery Tour double EP in 1967. Although still popular in 1969, the Beatles book ceased publication at the end of this year with issue 77. I've actually got uh, the copy of the Beatles book that George is looking at, which is issue number 66 for January of 1969. Uh, it's got a picture of Ringo at the kit in a purple, what would you call that? It's a ruffled shirt anyway. That's a studio shot and he's got tea towels all over his drums um, Johnny Dean's editorial at the beginning here is actually mentioning the live shows uh, saying there's been a lot of false reports uh, and they'll be the first to let people know but they are saying there's um, they must have run a competition in December because they've got 50 tickets to give away and they're looking at a date of January the 18th for the actual show which, as we know, is, has already shifted. Frida Kelly's newsletter talks about Paul's new beard. There's some pictures of some nice portraits of John and Paul. And then there's a flashback to New Year's Day 1962. They often did a feature about old Beatle news. Uh, an unfortunate picture of George sitting in a car with Jimmy Savile, the disgraced... DJ and TV presenter. Uh, picture of the Beatles at the Hammersmith Odeon Christmas show. There's a quite a sweet thing here of Beatles pen pals where people have actually printed their home addresses uh, and they're looking for people to write to them. Which does seem a little bit a little bit strange. Uh, another portrait of Paul Winking. A uh, vintage shot of sort of rubber soul era. John and Paul, an up-to-date list of fan club secretaries. You have a centre poster, which is a mad day out shot of the Beatles stood on a plinth. It's usually the one where they're pictured looking like they're fighting, but this one they're all just looking off in one direction. And you've got some, some letters from Beatles fans. They're writing with their reactions, and they're all talking about the new double LP. There's one from... Um, Elaine Danson, I feel disappointed that the boys choose to include Revolution Number no. 9 amongst the tracks. It's, uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And then there's an article by Mal about George's US visit. And this is a golden opportunity for me to do my Mal Evans impression. In places like Chicago, San Francisco and Washington, it was great to renew old friendships with DJs I knew from two, three and four years when they'd been with us on the Beatles US tours. In Cleveland, there was one incident I must recall for you. That Sunday night, Revolution was being shown on the Smothers Brothers show. We went along to a concert that evening, and in the middle of it, they took the lights down while the audience of about 8,000 kids gazed at a tiny television set trundled onto the centre of the stage. Yes, even a packed pop concert stopped so that both artists and the audience could watch the Beatles film clip on telly. Jackie and I were amazed, surprised and excited at this very real tribute from the stars of the concert, Big Brother and the Holding Company. From New York we flew to Los Angeles on Sunday, October 20th, and George was there at the airport to meet us. He'd already been there with Patty for four days. They'd just been to a knockout concert by the Cream and were full of that. 
George had rented a very beautiful house in Beverly Hills, one which Elizabeth Taylor had used not too long ago. The address was 1330 Shiloh Road, a marvellous place, complete with swimming pool, of course. We didn't have too much fan trouble at the house, except on October 31st. Trick or treat night, that's the American version of Halloween, and they have all the same trimmings we have, like putting candles in pumpkins. Kids knock at your door and demand a treat, or threaten to pull a trick. See what I mean? Well, when a gang of friendly Californian Beatle people knocked on our door, we were quick to settle for a treat handout. By meeting with people from Capitol Records before we arrived, George had already set up the first recording sessions for Jackie. The location was Sound Recorder's studio of Hollywood, near the famous Hollywood and Vine intersection, and less than a block away from Capitol's headquarters, the famous Capitol Tower building, which is shaped like a stack of giant records piled high up into the sky on top of one another. At Jackie's first session, we started work on Is This What You Want and Speak To Me, both original Jackie Lomax numbers, like all the rest we've prepared for this February Apple LP. The American session musicians were terrific. Most of the time we worked with the same three guys on drums, bass and organ. The drummer, Hal Blaine, is the top man for the job. He's on Elvis's current single, A Little Less Conversation. The mamas and papas wouldn't record without him and have even postponed sessions to wait for him to be available. So mostly, it was just a backing trio behind Jackie, but sometimes George organised a brass section or a string session for particular tracks, and a threesome of great girl singers from time to time. Between sessions, we had more than a few visitors up to the house. George was especially pleased Donovan and Cream were in town, and they spent several long evenings with us. Also, Al Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager, invited us to spend a few days at his place in Woodstock, New York, at the end of our stay in America. And this we were more than pleased to do. It's a final bit in here. Some more Mad Day Out pictures, shot of John from the Revolution um, taping. Another Mad Day Out picture sitting on the bench with a confused looking little boy. And you've got some news about the forthcoming television show. A mention of John joining the Stones for the Rock and Roll Circus. Accompanied by his current steady American photographer Linda Eastman, Paul spent December in Portugal. Talk about the Beatles Christmas record, people are asking Frida Kelly, is that really Tiny Tim with George on side two? And then the final page is uh, a set of six exciting new photos, some portraits and some group shots. And you can get those. Per photograph is three shillings, a set of six is 16 shillings. Uh, and for an extra seven and six, you can join the fan club. The back page is a colour shot of the Beatles. They're having a break in between filming Hey Jude and George is just reaching, reaching for his lighter. George, looking at the pictures, comments that they're all looking older. George is 25. Deteriorating. Ringo, spoken over by Paul, who says, deteriorating, says, it's back into its old ways. Ringo, left alone at the piano, runs through one of his works in progress, taking a trip to Carolina. Thank you.
He then plays something else with the same three chords. He's mumbling some lyrics. This is either improvised or another song we've never heard of. Left to his own devices, Ringo contents himself fiddling around on the piano. You can hear George, Paul and Mal talking. George and Paul and Mal in the foreground and Ringo in the background. Baseball winners, George's US visit, Mal Evans gives you a complete report. George is reading Mal's column in the Beatles Monthly. Actually... <laughs> Paul compares it to a British tabloid, the Daily Express. The Daily Express. Oh, look. I don't know how that is, top man of the job. He's on Elvis's couldn't sing a little less conversation. <laughs> this is the section I've quoted earlier about Hal Blaine. <laughs> is it a journalist style? Paul teasing Mal about his journalistic style. Paul, sounding distinctly more Liverpudlian, asks, who took the photos? Usually, it's Leslie Bryce. You'll see. Yeah, that's that one. No, no. Yeah, no, this... It may be... It's not really, well, it's not, not really. really. It's the most recent one. It's, it's Maybe it's... Is it Triant? They appear to be talking about the cover shot of Ringo, commenting that it looks like Trident Studio, where they recorded Hey Jude. Maybe Tony Thingy, um, Tony Bramwell. John Kelly and Tony Bramwell. George thinks maybe it's Tony Bramwell who took this, though he struggles to remember his name, and John Kelly... John Kelly was a photographer who, amongst other things, took the White Album insert portraits. Uh, he also took the picture that's used on the Hey Jude sheet music and uh, the pictures of Paul's wedding. I'll let Tony introduce himself. Yeah, hello, I'm uh, Tony Brownwell. I was uh, the Beatles road manager from 1961 through till 1972. I ran, I ran Apple Records and Apple Films and made all the promotion films. Tony Bramwell has actually produced one of the better written Beatles memoirs with his book Magical Mystery Tours. As he states, he progressed from fan to road manager to running shows at the Savile Theatre for Brian Epstein. 
stopping along the way to produce the promotional clips used by the band instead of making TV appearances from late 1965 onwards. He was head of promotions for Epstein's NEMS Enterprises when Brian died. He was present at the meeting when the Beatles, at Paul's suggestion, opted to manage themselves. This was also the meeting where the Magical Mystery Tour film was proposed and Dennis O'Dell contacted to produce it. Paul picked up the phone and called Dennis O'Dell at Twickenham Studios to ask him if he would produce Magical Mystery Tour for them. During the conversation in which John and Paul grabbed the phone from each other, they went even further and asked Dennis if he would become head of Apple Films. Paul turned to me. You can be his assistant, Tom, he decided. So whilst Dennis was producer for this project, it was Tony Bramwell who actually did the heavy lifting, booking and contracting the crew for the filming. Ensconced in his top floor office at Savile Row next to Peter Asher, away from the melee and the hangers-on. In his memoir, he states that he filmed the scenes at Twickenham and doesn't really mention Lindsay Hogg at all. As yet, we haven't heard from him on set, but I'll let you know if he shows up. What do you think of George's pseudo-tie sweatshirt? I think it's terrible. <laughs> George's pseudo-tie sweatshirt appears in the inner gatefold of the Red and Blue albums. It's also in the central poster in the Beatles book. Uh, I'll have a cup of tea, yeah. thanks man. Mal getting the teas in. Paul sings along to Ringo's piano as he walks away. The true story of the Beatles. A reference to the Hunter Davies biography of the group released at the end of last year. If you have not been able to obtain it, you can still get it direct. Accompanied by his current steady American photographer Linda Eastman, Paul spent a December week in Portugal visiting the Beatles biographer Hunter Davis. tape cuts and catches the end of Ringo talking to George. The comment, you've got a story, is referring to Mel's column too. George starts running through Dylan's Please Mrs. Henry on his Gibson J200 acoustic. The huge bodied Gibson acoustic guitar that George is playing is the J200, originally more fittingly called the Super Jumbo. Widely regarded by aficionados as Gibson's best acoustic, its deep bassy power and volume is as much felt by the player as heard. Despite its size and undoubted beauty, it was not as popular with guitar players in the pre-amplification era. The characteristic mid-range scoop of the guitars failed to cut through the mix of a full band on stage. Performers like Hank Williams favoured the much brighter sound in Martin D28, essentially the guitar Paul is using in these sessions. George acquired the guitar probably around June 1968 when he went to film in Big Sur with Ravi Shankar, and it features prominently in the 1968 White double album. George plays this guitar on both the acoustic outtake version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps and the electrified remake. 
It's high in the mix, driving the verses of Piggies, and its bassiness is definitely a major feature of George's side three closer, Long Long Long. For the Let It Be album, George used this guitar on For You Blue, playing the intro in the released version. John too was quite taken with the guitar and abandoned his Martin to play it on the track Two of Us and Maggie May. It's perhaps a bit too much detail, but I'm sure you've already come to expect it from this podcast. The strings on this guitar are very dead sounding and it's most likely they're nickel wound strings, which were common in the 60s and not so much nowadays due to this exact problem. You can hear the contrast in tone between the dull bass strings and the bright unwound treble strings in the intro to For You Blue. Later in 1969, it is believed George gave this guitar as a gift to Bob Dylan, and Dylan himself is seen posing with it on the cover of his 1969 album, Nashville Skyline. Uh, Ringo's turn with the Beatles book now. Mal pointing out what pictures he took. Back into too many old ones. Ringo bemoaning the centre of the magazine being full of old pictures from the band's early years. But as Mal points out, there aren't many new pictures. In 1968, the Beatles only set aside one day for group photos, a day that would become legendary as the Mad Day Out. For these get-back sessions, American photographer Ethan Russell has been commissioned, but more on him later. plays a few off-key notes to join in. Did you, did you play those? No. Oh, that, those tapes of Dylan's. Oh yeah, I play, no, only the one I played. George asking if Ringo has played his copy of Dylan's basement tapes. At this point they're not commercially available. George is incredulous that Ringo would only play one tape. Yeah. I think you should uh, do something about his costume, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'll go around back. An in-joke from George about Ringo's, or is it Paul's, posture. Mal asking if George had read all his column, but as we know, George has read some. Did you read that? Uh, I didn't plan anything in advance. Oh yeah, I just read a little bit of it. He only just arrived. Just... group performance, George on acoustic, Ringo on out of key piano, Paul humming along. This piece, Sulpy refers to as Rambling Woman. It's presumed to be an unreleased George composition.
and this is either another unreleased song or it's part of Rambling Woman. Paul's turn with the Beatles book. He's reading Frida Kelly's January fan club newsletter. Members in these areas can reach her by writing to Mrs. Barbara Baby. Paul and Ringo take evident delight at this lady being a married woman, insinuating she's too old to run a fan club. 71 Pensioner Street. <laughs> Actually, it's 7 Earlham Street. I can see that when I'm 90. It's a fascinating glimpse into this world where pop music is deemed as something just for kids. Well, that's, I, I like that about it. Mm. All of the steadiness. Yeah, it's just so sort of daft. Even though we just... Even though we think... If we're all in prison, <laughs> still be coming out from Hello, the boys in Penville this week. Send a big hi to all the Bertle persons. <laughs> Paul's comment on the fan club's unwavering support, saying that if they were in Pentonville prison, they'd still be reporting positive news. Ringo is doing time with mailbags. <laughs> it's fab in here. <laughs> Thanks for the Thanks. call. Thanks for the guitar. <laughs> That line I've deciphered as, no matter how cheap and crummy you say it is, hard to hear over Ringo's stabs on the piano. Try that one of James Ray. George likening one of the pictures to James Ray. James Ray is notable for providing George's number one song, Got My Mind Set On You. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's really well lit to disguise me some features. I think they're commenting on the portrait of Paul on page six, leaning forward with strong dramatic lighting and a toothsome grin over the beginnings of a beard. This causes George to comment. I think your beard suits you, man. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I'm... I'm captain. Ringo calls him Captain, <laughs> likening him to a sea captain. But do you know me about it? No, I'm just sort of... I don't know about it. Paul is in two minds. George says, keep it till you decide. As well, always. This is a great with anything film. Like keep no, it on till you do know yeah, about exactly, it. Yeah. Onward, did you see it? Ringo's saying, there's a great bit of film. Did you see it? not sure what this refers to yet. George will have seen his 1968 portrait with a moustache here. That may have inspired him to grow one again. Yeah. You're just sort of thinking, uh, but it's all that. It's like, to go I, away is yeah. such a good thing. As you know, it's not to see it from you get it. And uh, just like all the band, you know, it's too much. Because, uh, you know, if the, they've got all that gear but you know that's it's like just the whole thing that is worth just living and they just they happen to be a band as well george reflecting on how good it was to get away and hang out with dylan and the band and uh too much the drummer is fantastic because he plays guitar really he's not really the drummer you know they all just believe yeah. he's the main drummer and uh levon Helm is called, and he's really like that. Coats come up from Somerset, you know, those people. <laughs> he's like got no neck and all these whiskers and, you know, happy, smiling face. And he's just praying. <laughs> That's all they're seeing, he's just singing all those songs. 
Uh, you'd go down a bomb with them. <laughs> yeah, you know, because it's all like no really neck. country western. Yeah. Their favourite yeah. track was Ringo's track. Yeah. Because, you know, all round there, because it's like. You know, that's the scene completely. Yeah. Are you going to write another? Yeah, okay. Paul asks Ringo if he'll write another tune. And then immediately regrets it. Yes, I, I, just, I am. But I know, you know, I just realised there's a daft question. Really I was going to write gonna write some Yes, someday. I know, because I really do get fed up with... Do you know, not knowing the chords yet? Oh, do you do? Oh, what's that one? He's got a great one. Picasso. George, full of encouragement for Ringo. Even Paul knows about the song Picasso. Because actually it's a fast one too, isn't it? It's too fast for me. Paul, self-aware that they don't have any fast songs for the live show. As Ringo can only play piano in the key of C, he struggles to sing in that register. George offering writing advice the same way that John had advised him a few years earlier. Thanks, man. Oh, oh, baby. Do you know uh, Dylan? There was paint everywhere. You know, oh, baby. Should do it though, yeah. Yeah. Like Don't Pass Me By, these songs are made up from the chords C, F and G. Uh, that's just white notes on the piano. But Buddy Holly got away with three chords, so if it's good enough for him... In the interest of complete forensic analysis, I should point out that George appears to have put a capo on his guitar on the third fret to play along. Maybe. <laughs> Just get me back then. Yeah. With, um, what was his name? Peter Golland. Holland. Peter Yolland. Yolland. <laughs> Peter Yolland was director of the Beatles' 1963 Christmas shows. He appears with his back to the camera on page 11. Have you heard? 
Wilson Pickett. Yeah. No, I've been trying to get a copy. And I heard Connolly it in, on Saturday when we were It's supposed to be, that's going to knock them all out. Yeah. That's too much. Paul and George discussed the latest covers to catch their interest. Arthur Connolly's Obla Di Obla Da and Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude. Featuring the guitar work of Dwayne Allman, soon to work with Eric Clapton on Layla, which is a song to George's wife, Patty. Yeah, I'm glad at last that you know, the real people are doing it, but they did the last ones. Paul refers to these American soul idols of the band as the real people. Fats was good doing that, but he was like, it was yeah. a white influence they made him Yes, right, yeah. but it was still all right. But what else? There was something scene. else done by, you know, a heavy one, Solomon Burke or one of them. Yeah. George, referring to Fats Domino, he'd just released several Beatles covers, notably Lady Madonna. I don't think Solomon Burke covered the Beatles. His most famous song is... Everybody needs somebody to love. These would really make a film now. Mm. George is still not sure, concerned even, of why they need to be filmed right now. See, but it, it, what he was Mike saying yesterday, it's good. It's good because he was saying, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, Picasso paints, where you start from nothing, because we started from nothing, yeah. and it'll end up as a TV show. Paul using that reference, Picasso paints, goes back to that concept of building something from nothing. It's not a good analogy, really. Picasso doesn't paint the same picture over and over until he gets it right. But they'll have all this sort of... It's there. 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 I mean, thinking of all the tunes I've got, and they're all... They're all slowish. I seem to be. Yeah, most of mine are. George and Paul reflect on their songs not being the up tempo rock and roll required for this live show. Most of mine are. I've got that Taxman part two. Oh, Taxman yeah. Taxman revisited. Uh, five years long. long. But that can be very nice with. But it should be like. Very sad type, you know, with you know, maybe a string or two. Mmm. Taxman Part 2 is believed to be a reference to George's song, Isn't It a Pity? Paul calls it a five-year slog, even though it's only three years old. See, see so far, there's, a, there's just only a, there's a couple that I know I could do live with no backing. And that was one of them, that one. George considers playing a song as a solo performance. The chords remind him of the old standard, When You're Smiling. Oh yeah, just with no backing, just with the guitar and singing. Well, that? you know, I, that's how I've been doing it, and that's you know how it sounded all the time. But yeah, I mean, it's it'd probably be. If nice you can do that, if you can do that, mm -hmm. that would be great. Paul is encouraging, and so is Ringo. Because it's as old as that. If you can do it, then that's it. Now George starts the chords to "All Things Must Pass." No, it'd be nicer with. George suggesting half-heartedly it'd be nicer with some backing. As the three present Beatles move to the rehearsal space, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. 
You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Bye.